This is Mutant, and you're listening to Dialogues at the End of Democracy. Welcome back. If you're new to Mutant, this is where we are building episode by episode a dictionary of democracy, a language with which to understand the deformities that have come to mark democracy in our time. This is the second part of our dialogue on the letter V and the word violence. It is a grim and urgent moment in which to think about violence because we're coming to it at a time when violence in its most visible form has once again erupted in different parts of the world, Russia and Ukraine, Israel and Palestine. And something remarkable about violence is currently revealing itself, which is its ability to make itself normative. Even war, the most public face of violence, becomes normative with the passage of as little as weeks and months. And so while it's important to keep our gaze on war zones and to look this moment in the eye, it is also, I think, imperative to step back and look at our relentless return to violence and to unearth and think about the structures, the systems, the invisible modes that enable this kind of moment to come to pass. Eshwari, if violence has this almost effortless capacity to become a norm, does that mean violence is the scaffolding on which democracies are built? Um, Is violence the functioning of democracy rather than a breakdown of it? Yeah, that's a fascinating, uh, fascinating question for one one very important reason and something that needs uh, a very careful articulation. Uh, And we have talked already of the enigma that violence is. The enigma that violence is, is because it is at once a concept it stands on its uh, on its own logical coherence. It seems to be one philosophical whole of a problem, uh, and at the same time, it's an anti-concept. That is to say, violence is something um, that needs a proper deconstruction, uh, a, a proper parsing out, as an effect of other things in the world. And one of the primary and primal compulsions that violence is an effect of is the compulsion that human beings have to live in an unequal world. We have said this before on Mutant uh, in many ways, that if a choice were to be given to a vast swath of humanity today, uh, a choice between living in an equal world or simply perishing in an event of planetary extinction, there is a very strong chance um, that a vast swath of human beings and humanity will choose extinction over over equality. That is how primal the compulsion is among human beings to live in an unequal world uh, with an unbridled space for exercise of asymmetrical power. We know that in the Western political tradition, this is what Hobbes would describe as the state of nature, a war 
of all against all. The enigma of violence therefore comes uh, from this peculiarity that human beings actually want to live uh, or at least one pessimistic tradition uh, within modern political thought believes humanity would want to live in a state of nature and that we need therefore sovereignty or sovereign governments uh, whether we call this sovereignty or this figure of sovereignty a prince, a king, a monarch, or a parliament, or in, in the case of modern democratic thought, the people. We need sovereign power to protect ourselves from our own compulsion to violence. Now, this is where we come closest to understanding why it is easier for human beings to see in violence a certain normative universe. In fact, nonviolence seems so radical, at least to me, nonviolence and its radicality comes precisely from the fact that it is violence that is normative in our world. So when you say, is violence the norm in democracies? And, and I say to that, yes, it is. It should not be a very controversial claim. The only people who would believe that it's very controversial would be a certain kind of obstinate liberal who believes that the world is somehow both perfect and at the same time perfectible. I mean, to give uh, modern liberalism its due, it has never ceased to believe that the world can be made better. While it does disagree with uh, classical Marxism and uh, right-wing uh, uh, fascisms in that um, the world is imperfect as is. Liberalism also believes that the world can be perfected. The, the, the notion, however, that we need to begin with cruelty in order to achieve that more perfectible, more just, if not, uh, if not a, a perfect universe, is what comes out from the tradition of radical liberalism, not conventional normative liberal thought. And that is what we have often associated with figures like B.R. Ambedkar and Judith Klar. Uh, and in many ways, uh, even James Baldwin, who is, who is by no stroke of imagination a liberal, but whose belief that in order for the world to become more free, in order for the world to become more equal, we must begin with the monstrosity of our primal compulsion, which is violence. Come straight from that corner of the modern political tradition that we have been calling radical liberalism. Um, so uh, when, when we return to the enigma of violence, we need to return to this idea that violence is the norm already. It is nonviolence that is abnormal, even deemed abnormal. 
right? It is nonviolence that is more radical. It is um, with nonviolence that we achieve a certain kind of force uh, that can create a more just universe. The enigma of violence is that it is not an aberration. The enigma of violence is that it is indeed the norm. I want to um, touch on nonviolence. Um, again, in, in our last conversation, uh, we had begun to talk about this, but you referred to nonviolence um, as not the antithesis of violence, something that uh, we commonly assume. We don't even uh, feel the need to explicitly articulate it. We just make that assumption. In what way is it not the antithesis? And just to extend that question a bit, is there a way to think about nonviolence in which it is not merely the absence of violence? Um, is nonviolence something you can only understand in relation to violence? Or is it also an absolute and whole concept in itself? The idea that the, the idea that nonviolence is antithetical to violence is 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 not a complicated claim. It's just that it's a highly ineffective one, right? You can always make a claim that by its very conceptual uh, idea, uh, the very idea of nonviolence, because it involves a withdrawal from an economy of violence, nonviolence is the antithesis of of violence. As a, as a philosophical and abstract claim, it holds true, but it's not adequate to understanding why we repeatedly fail to leave the economy of violence behind, why we repeatedly insert ourselves into a vicious cycle of violence and counter-violence, and why, above all, does violence Every time it returns in the, in the form of war or in the form of sacrifice or in the form of scapegoating or in the form of the desire to exterminate a country or a society or a community, why does it always take the same form? Why is violence always a set of uh, visible attributes, or as we were, we have been calling, a set of effects that takes a very repetitive, familiar, and predictable form, right? And in order to understand that uh, fact, is to already understand that sometimes the effect that violence has, and the effect that violence is a uh, violence carries can take nonviolent forms. Uh, we've already said that you know absolute nonviolence can exist only under conditions of absolute power. This is one of the great insights in Hannah Arendt's work, which is paid less attention to compared to her other insight about violence and power. Uh, the 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 most widely rehearsed and repeated argument about Hannah Arendt's work is that she sees in violence an absence or a breakdown of power. 
the classical Arendtian reading of this claim is that only when power has completely broken down does violence appear as a suitable or appropriate response, uh, among which she counts and gives examples of many, uh, including revolutionary violence um, against monarchical power, uh, um, against uh, anti-colonial violence, uh, uh, which which takes the form of revolt by settlers against uh, you know the ruling authority in another country and so on and so forth. But there's another very profound insight in Arendt, which is her idea, while she is always critical of violence, she also has a, a, a remarkable insight about nonviolence, which is that absolute nonviolence, like in Auschwitz or in the concentration camps or in the colonies that uh, uh, today are described as open-air prisons, as Gaza is often described, even by Israeli military authorities. In these places, nonviolence exists only as a function of absolute domination, of total power, right? So, and, and this particular insight is paid less attention to. So as a way to compound that relationship of antithesis between violence and, and nonviolence, we must, we must, um, part ways with Arendt there and say, uh, with her first insight, in order to emphasize her second one, which is that insofar as nonviolence exists in a perfect world, that perfect world is a world constituted by total domination of one over another. Right? In that sense, there is not an antithesis. But there is a certain kind of nonviolence, I believe, which is based not upon uh, a human beings or a political subject's withdrawal from the economy of violence. Gandhi sometimes believed that he could withdraw not only himself, but an entire society from an economy of violence. And I think he was, he failed partly because of the sheer moral ambition of that belief. He failed not because it was misplaced. He failed not because it was, um, uh, it was a faith uh, that he, that was delusional. He failed because it was it was way too ambitious and optimistic, and at times blind to the rage that sometimes drive human beings to nonviolent forms of domination. He failed because he failed to see that sometimes. The absence of violence is not nonviolence because he failed to see that sometimes nonviolence is where the greatest violence resides. My understanding is that in order to recreate and regenerate a vocabulary and a mentality for nonviolence, we need to move away from Gandhi. Uh, this is something that uh, this is something that I find profoundly illuminating in someone like Judith Klar and and B. R. Ambedkar. I mean, Ambedkar's critique of violence is so powerful because he connects violence not to the absence of nonviolence, but because he connects violence to the absence of human freedom, to the presence of 
searing, devastating, catastrophic inequality. Gandhi prioritizes nonviolence over even freedom. Ambedkar believes that there will be no nonviolence until there is freedom. And this will lead us to our one of our major episodes on freedom. But this is something I wanted to create a footnote for already. Because what, what we are really trying to understand is, as you put it, if nonviolence is, uh, is both an antithesis and not an antithesis of violence, what really is nonviolence? And I want to just, um, by way of that brief segue into Ambedkar and Gandhi, um, say that this is what radical nonviolence is. It is first and foremost a refusal of the human will, of this primal human will to punish others. Nonviolence cannot exist in a universe where punitive will is allowed to fester and thrive and gnaw. Radical nonviolence is therefore first and beyond everything else, in fact, in the last instance, radical nonviolence, and this is what I, I, um, this is the kind of radical nonviolence I connect to figures like Judith Klar, B. R. Ambedkar, and and Martin Luther King Jr. Radical nonviolence is the refusal of vengeance. And I think once we place vengeance to be at the heart of our problem, at the heart and the center of what we are calling the enigma of violence, we start to see the limits of our understanding of violence and nonviolence equally. But we are also now at that threshold where we begin to unpack and deconstruct what we are calling the enigma of violence as such. We believe that violence is a thing that we can critique because it's a concept. But violence is more and less than a concept. And therein lies its enigmatic power. If it is a concept, what are its limits? What are its boundaries? What are its scaffoldings? its structure that give us its flawless appearance, as all concepts must have. A concept by its very nature is flawless. It does not need other concepts to stand on itself. It, other, it, it does not need other concepts to bolster its presence as a concept. And if violence is therefore a concept, what gives it its flawless appearance? If, if violence is an anti-concept, on the other hand, and at the same time, what is it that gives it its power? What is it that it is an effect of? What is it or what are these other things or other concepts to which it brings its own power? Right? For example, you and I can be unequal on many registers. But the moment your and my 
inequality acquires a violent form, we can say that violence has brought a certain kind of power to that inequality. When we say violence is an effect of other things, we are also saying, and quite devastatingly, that violence is bringing a kind of tangible, visible, manifest power to this thing, of which it is an effect. So violence compounds other concepts. If violence, for example, as, uh, as we have often argued, is an effect of ine human inequality, then the moment violence makes its appearance as an effect of that inequality, we have entered into a new phase of barbarism, where inequality is not simply our inequality on the basis of gender or sex or community or religiosity or belief. Our inequality has now taken the form of barbarity. Right? So in order to understand violence as an enigma, we have to understand both these things. It's flawlessness, it's coherence as a concept, and it's manifest barbarity. That is, that lends power to other concepts. Right? And this is why Ambedkar is so important, because he believes that violence brings power to other forms of conceptual imaginaries, right? To understand nonviolence is to therefore understand first and foremost this imaginary. To understand nonviolence, as I was saying in one word, is to therefore understand not just violence as a concept. It is to understand the vengeance with which we resort to it. Radical nonviolence is the refusal of vengeance. You have, in a sense, um, preempted and answered a question that, uh, that I have that wasn't even fully formed. But what is violence for uh, was... Uh, was exactly where I was headed. Uh, because when you say, and I think you've answered that uh, in saying that violence both compounds, but is also uh, a demonstration of a kind of a will to power. And, and I wonder, uh, I think this is also where I was coming from when I asked whether it is foundational to democracy itself. Because in some sense, the structures of democracy or the structures of modern political life, often democratic political life, um, you know, we touched on in the episode on L with the law, the law and its will to punish. We touched on, you know, the idea of borders and the figure of the migrant who is constantly outside it. Uh, there is a foundational violence at the heart of every one of these democratic structures um, that that seems to cohere very keenly with what you're saying, which is that uh, that these are all, in a sense, reinstituting through violence a kind of power. But because you uh, also touched on Ambedkar, I want to ask whether, um, and Ambedkar's critique of the Gita 
in uh, the Indian tradition and in um, being one of the few, if not only, to quite simply call out the Gita as a text of fratricide. And the Gita occupies in our civic life in in India both an overt and a covert place as the root of where civic and social norms, familial norms uh, come from or are justified and excused uh, in the name of. If I understand it correctly then, um, the Gita posits violence also as duty, right? And again, is is that a conception that is often at the heart of our refusal to leave violence behind? Do we believe somewhere that there is a duty to violence? Yeah, let's let's uh, let's start uh, disentangling the two threads here about fratricide on the one hand, and its fundamental place in our epic traditions, um, all epic traditions. Uh, India is not unique in this, right? There is a certain kind of parricide, a certain, uh, you know, in in psychoanalysis. There is fratricide in the Gita, uh, the killing of fathers by sons, the killing of brothers by cousins, are are the building blocks. The killing of children for God are the building blocks of all traditions, monotheistic and or otherwise, right? So I, I think. One of the important uh, fronts you have opened here is to uh, is to understand the relationship between violence and tradition, violence therefore and memory, um, and most importantly, uh, violence and uh, and and its 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 political fabric uh, that is built into our scriptural beliefs, right? Um, anyone who today thinks that the Gita is about duty, that the Gita is about uh, what in the Indian tradition called karmkand, uh, that the Gita is about selfless commitment to moral living and dutifulness or obligation without a concern for ends. Uh, and this is the most commonsensical, most pervasive understanding of uh, modern Hinduism writ large, right? Uh, the idea of karmkand. You, you do your duty in the world, you live through the stages of life, and you leave everything, including your own fate, to the universe or to one of the 30,000 gods you believe in. Uh, every person who believes this in good faith has in some ways been taken in by a fratricidal inception of this belief. At its very foundation, this is why I think Ambedkar is an unparalleled thinker, um, not only in the relationship, not only of the relationship between violence and tradition, but violence and the law, violence and norm. Because in the end, as if I were to extend your argument, I we could simply say that the Gita's teachings are now normative. 
They have been normalized. There is nothing legal about the Gita except that as an act of faith, every witness in a court of law is asked to touch it or place their hands on it. There is nothing legal about the Gita, but that is exactly my point, that while there's nothing legal about Gita, there is something profoundly juridical about it. That is to say something profoundly punitive about it, something profoundly tactile about it. The Gita is the normalization of our sacrificial relationship to the body. This is why we kind of, we are um, sort of compelled to touch it when we are supposed to be telling the truth. Right? The Gita is a thing. And in that sense, it's a thing that normalizes other things. This is why Ambedkar can say the Gita's very power is its violence. It's not that the Gita proposes a violent world. It does not. It simply proposes that Arjun, the last heroic warrior in the Indian tradition, Arjun is the last figure that everyone in the Hindu warrior tradition would want to be and would never become. Why? Because Arjun is also a moral figure. In Ambedkar's own reading of the Gita, you see Ambedkar pausing a little, you know, a little bit and thinking there's a moment of hesitation in and only in Arjun where he at least has the will to revolt against the moral law that requires him to kill his brothers. Even Karn does not have it. When Kunti returns to Karn and says, they are your brothers, Karn says, I am obligated to kill them for my friend. One can extract an ethics of friendship from Karn, but one cannot extract an ethics of responsibility. From Karna. It's only in Arjun that that and this is this is what has always fascinated me for now for 20 years about Ambedkar's reading of the Gita. You know, there's a commonsensical, very, very regressive, I would say, reading of this of the Indian political tradition in which uh, Ambedkar uh, uh, born an outcast is often seen to be the modern analog of Karna who's brought up by a, a charioteer's family, an outcast. Uh, the, most, uh, the most lucid uh, and I would say righteously, rightly celebrated uh, uh, articulator of this analogy was D.R. Nagraj uh, in his flame feed. He often saw the dialogue between uh, Arjun and Krishna to illuminate something about Ambedkar and Gandhi's relationship. Uh, and and I find that profoundly problematic and and enhanced less careful than DR Nagraj's, it takes very reactionary forms. Uh, the analog for Ambedkar is actually nobody in the Mahabharata, but if there is one figure with whom he associates a certain ethics of responsibility a certain commitment to what I would call anti-violence, not non-violence, it's Arjun. 
And in that commentary, uh, which he wanted to uh, finish as a whole book, Essays on the Gita, he pauses briefly where he says Arjun hesitates, but then he's also swept into this vortex of dutifulness that Krishna weaves around him. And he, he just falls into that fratricidal swirl of violence. Now, to understand, therefore, why we fail to leave violence is to first understand that something like the Gita has a power over the modern Indian or Hindu imaginary precisely because of this violence. We have decided to give it different names. We call it, as you were uh, rightly pointing out, we call it a text of dutifulness of obligation, uh, of karm, uh, of dharm even, right? The Gita is different things. Um, sometimes we hold it as our oath to truthfulness, to bearing correct witness. Uh, the Gita can even be a, a, a framework for our rectitude of how upright we are. Right? But its pervasiveness has a lesson for Ambedkar. And its pervasiveness has a lesson for Ambedkar insofar as its real fratricidal core has been lost to amnesia, to a civilizational amnesia. And that's why for him the Gita is more a text of juridical power, more a text, as I called it uh, now 14 years ago, a text that legislates for the first time the laws of war. That is a, you know, it's a legislation of fratricide for Ambedkar, which is why he believes that, um, that to understand our compulsion to violence is to first understand an absence in the Indian tradition. And that absence is the absence of any language that can capture the striving for human freedom. The Indian traditions, any, in, in many languages, you can um, have no word for freedom that is not already charged by a theological or a scriptural or a religious power or even a sacrificial power. There is mukti, there is moksha, there, you know, there is more in more modern iterations, swatantrata, there is swadhinta. All these concepts are somewhere linked to what I would call the apparatus of political subjectivity, to the logic of juridical power, or most importantly, to the structure of a punitive universe. None of these concepts really carry the burden that a concept for human freedom, a concept that stands for human freedom, can carry. And that is why, for Ambedkar, fratricide becomes the guiding metaphor, the guiding thread to understand our compulsion to violence. Um, since we're um, on the figure of Ambedkar, and since he is so integral also to our 
conception in India in particular uh, of ourselves as a modern democratic state. How did he read uh, or how did he conceive of the relationship between democracy and violence, both in light of India, the constitution he wrote, uh, the modern nation he helped create, but also in his reading of democracy as such? You know, I've always been pulled uh, towards a, a certain constellation of thinkers, not because they believe democracy is is the most perfect form of political organization, let alone social organization, but because uh, there is something uh, deeply saddening they find in the state of democracy, right? Ambedkar, for example, uh, in a way that I can only describe as sadness, uh, given the faith he places on uh, on on democracy would be profoundly saddened by the fact that it takes um, uh, it, that a fratricide can become even for him such an illuminating concept to understand what uh, you know what democracies do to themselves. You know, elsewhere we've talked about and written about. Um, uh, this self-lacerating impulse within democracy that uh, that makes it impossible to understand it through anything other than its response to conflict and violence, but especially war, right? F a democracy was supposed to be an idea in which the people, or at least a majority of uh, a people, decided what was best for everyone. And yet that idea of democracy, that, that act of faith that is democracy, has for most part existed as an exception and not as a rule. And I think for Ambedkar, it's, it, would, it would be profoundly saddening um, that violence and democracy remain so closely bound uh, with, with one another. Um, but, you know, the idea that democracy and violence remain inextricable is precisely why democracy becomes more important. And I would say for Ambedkar, the idea of citizenship becomes more important. Uh, the, because citizenship, um, you know, the idea of citizenship and this lived reality of citizenship becomes whole, not through formal rights, although these rights are fundamental. Our rights as citizens are fundamental, but the idea of citizenship becomes whole not through simply these the existence of these formal rights, but through acts of resistance. Right? And that is what Ambedkar is trying to create a vocabulary and a grammar for. How do citizens resist and claim freedom in a society where no vocabulary for human freedom exists. Right. And this is again something that brings him so close to someone like James Baldwin and MLK, right? Uh, how do societies that are built upon a genocidal lie, Baldwin calls it a genocidal lie that America lives by, a denialism, right? America for Baldwin is constructed on on the grounds of a denial of black presence. How do these societies actually become whole? Other than through resistance, 
of that whole. Ambedkar's famous phrase is apart apart, right? Citizenship is the act of becoming a part that stands apart from the whole. And every citizen is obligated to recognize that somewhere they are indeed responsible, even complicit in these acts of violence, that their governments perpetrates in their name. There's no way a citizen can fully absolve herself or themselves from the fact today that America has um, gone in and entered into yet another conflict zone without any real sense of where this war would end. It seems like democracies have themselves become arenas of wars without ends, right? And we need to understand, therefore, that not all violence is resistance, right? Um, you know, for example, the actions by Hamas on October 7th is not purely resistance in the way civic resistance works. Civic resistance works in the way Palestinians have tried to work, make it work. There's no doubt about it. But the actions of Hamas are not exactly in the tradition that we are talking of, of Ambedkar and Shkar, exactly resistance. But nor is Israel's aim to flatten and level Gaza a moral or even realistic way to secure a more peaceful life for Jews in the Arab world. American solidarity and global solidarity with Palestinian lives, now that is resistance. That is why opposition to the government citizens vote for, again and again, is even more and not less important, precisely because governments take their citizens to war. Right? That is the, the, the second face of this enigma. We have, um, we have articulated this enigma elsewhere in, uh, in Mutant uh, by the aporia that the weakest and the most vulnerable citizens of a society are the first to come to the rescue of democratic institutions, institutions that let them down are always in the final instance protected and saved by democratic means and resistance by the most vulnerable. Those in power are willing to throw away institutions for their own profit and, in fact, as Fanon would say, their bourgeois greed, their insatiable appetite for things. It's the vulnerable, the unequal, the outnumbered, the minority, whether it's black voters in America or the minorities, the, the Muslims in India who are the single largest Muslim minority in the world. They come to the rescue of democratic institutions. Right? This is why solidarity, we were saying in our episode on identity, matters more. Right? Because solidarity is the crucible of all resistance. Resistance, which is to say, to refuse to surrender 
ourselves to the fact fabrications and perjuries of our government. Resistance is the refusal of citizens to surrender to the fabrications and perjuries of their government. And that refusal to surrender is the only way to salvage a democratic truth from the brute fact that democratic government itself today might be directly walking into another war that it can never win. Israel is nominally or even formally democratic. It has just walked into another war. It will never win because here is the truth. Nobody wins a war. War by its very nature is without end because war is fueled not by a desire for ends. War is fueled by a primal compulsion for repeated vengeance. War will never end because war creates the false illusion of equality between enemies. Israel now thinks it is equal to Hamas, just as Hamas thought it was equal to Israel. And that is the primal compulsion we have been talking about. The idea that retribution brings immediate equality. Radical nonviolence is the refusal of that retribution. Radical equality comes only from this force, I would say, of nonviolence. This force that comes from resistance to the perjuries of our government, this force that comes from our ability, from a citizen's ability to refuse an economy of vengeance in which their government will pull them yet again and again. In fact, this refusal is the moral core of resistance. Because after all, what is democracy other than a citizen's voice? No matter how this voice and this presence is, makes its presence felt. And that is democracy's miraculous power, despite the fact that democracies more often than not let their citizens down. I was speaking to um, students um, this past month who are going through an enormous turmoil around what their government has again walked into after a disastrous act of leaving the war in Afghanistan. The United States is back into this conflict where it has already started to fire missiles at Hezbollah strongholds from sea, right? And this is what resistance is about, I tell them, because every phone call to an elected official makes a difference. Why? Because every phone call makes them see the power of voters, citizens, unwilling to be dragged into another genocidal conflict marked by yet another brutal asymmetry of power. This war that has already shown that children and women will be used and bombed as part of a military strategy. Right? And 
it is fascinating to me uh, in just to see how many ways MLK's sentence from his letter from a Birmingham jail, about which we have talked uh, before in Mutant, that the planetary sweep of this injustice will be felt everywhere, as MLK would say. But more importantly, that this planetary sweep of injustice in which children will be bombed can still be read. This letter can still today be read to illuminate our own times, 50 years later. And yet how few Americans read it. And this is why I think it is important that in these two episodes we have come back to even reading Fanon closely. Right? Because for one thing, there is one thing Fanon is not. There is one thing Fanon is not. Franz Fanon is not a believer in violence as an expression of hatred. As Fanon says, violence is not one thing to be seen and despised. Violence is an effect of colonial greed and its bourgeois civic malice. How powerfully this illuminates our own, um, as Isa Bell Wilkerson has written, recently written, our own universe of caste is simply shocking. It's staggeringly relevant. Whoever only just now says, look, the colonized are savages, have, have never understood the violence of their own gaze and the blindness of their own rage, all of which is couched in a paradigm of epistemic inequality. They have only ever trained their eyes on the colonized because, uh, and here is Baldwin speaking to white America and white Americans. They are so afraid what they might find when they look at themselves closely. Baldwin has this remarkable uh, claim about America's genocidal lie and its hatred. And he, he says, you know, people are often afraid to let go of their hatred because of the emptiness that will follow once they let go of their hatred, right? Um, the emptiness that will end in a smile. Think here of Hindutva's emptiness. Uh, there are, uh, if, if some of us have seen uh, pictures of the Gandhi assassination trial, uh, where all the accused are seated in the court. There are a few like Gotse and Apte who have a smile on their faces. That's the moral emptiness that appears on our horizon once hatred has done its work. Right? And that is what makes justice so important to radical nonviolence. Because one thing that justice is, and one thing that radical nonviolence requires, is our refusal of that sort of majoritarian vengeance. There will be no world without violence, without our ability to refuse 
vengeance. And this vengeance can take many different forms. And as you were saying, it will in our own time often take democratic forms. After all, democratic vengeance is the building block, is the structure upon which the neo-democratic condition, as we've been calling it, rests. Neo-democracy is vengeance giving democratic voice, a kind of brazen, ultra-nationalist articulation of hatred as a legitimate organizing principle of politics. This is why nationalism, let alone extreme nationalism, is the pure antithesis, is the murderous antithesis of justice. Because the work of justice cannot be pro-nationalist, as, as explicitly as we can state it right now for our moment, the work of justice is neither pro-Israeli nor pro-Palestinian. Justice is about salvaging the sacred fact of being human. It's about an inviolable equality with which we treat our humanity. Right? It's the refusal to be sucked into the same neo-colonial universe that partitions the world into first, second, and third worlds. Right? The colonial plunder of the world by Western nations is not a greater crime and not a lesser crime than the Holocaust was. And it's certainly not a lesser crime or a greater crime than the Hamas's call for the annihilation of Israel. But Hamas does not represent Palestinians. One million children in the Gaza Strip were born after Hamas suspended democratic elections in Gaza Strip. They have no idea of how they come to be seen as supporters of Hamas. When a million of them are the oldest in among the million of them are barely teenagers. And that is the false attribution that nation states work with. And that is the false attribution leading to an economy of vengeance that democracy must refuse. That refusal is citizenship. What else is citizenship other than the refusal to partake in the perjuries and fabrications of the government that citizens choose. Thus, the aporia. Uh, we are pretty much out of time. We have opened up as many, uh, I think, now fronts central to mutant, uh, two ideas in particular, two you have nodded to two episodes to come, one on freedom and one on justice. Uh, that I think uh, will be central to understanding mutant itself, why mutant exists, but also equality um, and how that is at the heart of this economy of violence. I think above all, uh, where you 
sort of brought us to as we close the episode. Violence, both from the state uh, and in the name of the citizen as a mode of political domination, but also the purported defeat and injury that fuels the cycle uh, and and the multi-generational, you know, transnational brought to bear on descendants and communities who, let alone having touched you, were not even born then. And I I want to know how you think, is there in fact a conception of nonviolence in which we can exit this trap that humanity has created for itself in which generations of descendants are sucked into wars that are in fact rumor to them? What is that mode of, of nonviolence in which we can exit this this trap we have created for ourselves. Yeah, you know, uh, Payal, uh, often I describe nonviolence first and foremost as the refusal of vengeance, not violence. Non-vi- radical nonviolence is a refusal of vengeance. And, and, and today I think we have come to that point where you have articulated its other very important idea and ideal. Radical nonviolence is the refusal of rumor which in our own time we could call as the refusal of disinformation, which philosophically we could even say nonviolence is a refusal of our distrust in other human beings. Because in the end, these are the three vectors of violence. Uh, Vengeance, rumor, and distrust. And I would connect it most importantly to to the neo-democratic condition, as I as I call it, and we've talked about it in in the in the terms that you've already laid out. I think very very powerfully is that democracy is in the end an act of faith that resists corruption of our soul, if that is a word, and that's a that's a word only a word. I don't have to believe in the existence of soul to understand that there is an act of faith that joins me with others in a democracy, right? Uh, And this act of faith is a commitment to a world that would refuse to stand by occupation of minds and bodies alike. Because in the end, soul is also body. I I believe, uh, you know, one thing we forget about caste is it's, it's body made into soul and vice versa. And so democracy is a commitment to this shared humanity across the blood-stained wires of religious identity and delusions, I would say, of violent militarized martyrdom. Israeli soldiers who go into tunnels or are sent into tunnels in, in Gaza today are no less charged with and motivated by delusions of martyrdom than the Hamas soldiers and militias that attacked a music festival in southern Israel, right? So the the refusal, democracy's refusal of militarized martyrdom is fundamental to understanding this compulsion we have been talking about. Because democratic commitment is a commitment to a world where those whom we lose to mindless violence and counter-violence are grieved equally as equals. Democratic commitment is to a radical nonviolence, 
that is to say to the inviolability of life grounded in our absolute radical equality, to put it in your terms. And this is what we call justice. No artifice of national and religious identity can contain this equality and this justness of our demand for it. Now you are right, generations are born into conflict and war without even having given the freedom. This is why freedom matters. Without even having given the freedom to choose, let alone a side, but make a choice between war and peace. They are already bombed as part of a war and a military strategy because it is assumed, the world assumes that 12-year-old Palestinian children have, are supporters of Hamas. And we know it is not only irrational, this claim is delusional. It feeds into that generational cycle of violence and counter-violence. This is why it takes more than two, two or more generations to really understand the true force, as I called it in radical equality, the true force of nonviolence. Tanahesi Coates, for example, has now put this in his characteristic style uh, when, uh, upon his return from, from Gaza, when he says, You know, I returned and, and I realized, he says with his own unparalleled eloquence, he realizes what nonviolence is. Nonviolence is the rejection of someone's power to corrupt my soul. Because anyone who corrupts my soul corrupts generations of young souls. As MLK knew this, and he knew this better than most, he knew nonviolence was a commitment of not one movement. Nonviolence was a commitment of generations, not of one people but of our shared destiny. After all, the true adversary of our social bond is not the violent misanthrope or the system of violence he polices. The true adversary of our social bond is a transgenerational theft of time because violence steals away our time. Violence destroys generations and we can therefore escape its ravages only when we understand that the work of true justice must stretch beyond our own lifetimes, freed from immediate compulsions and retaliations. You've been talking on the peripheries of our main dialogue for weeks now about our reluctance to appreciate what climate justice requires. This is what it requires, a freedom from our desire to gratify our needs that stretches beyond our own lifetimes. That is what climate justice would require. And we see the importance of this uh, uh, insight from King and Coates across campuses here in America. Every day where books are hastily cited or banned for immediate gratification as if a France Fanon would have loved this war where Instagram reels are cut out of quotes without context, as if Edward Said would have justified the actions of the Hamas militias. Said would have had nothing to do with Hamas. 
And yet he's cut out into reels as if humanism and barbarism, as if Saeed's humanism and Hamas's barbarism are one and the same. And where TikTok is flooded by calls to resistance and violence in the same breath, as if violence and not nonviolence is resistance. And each of these blurs the irreducible ethical line between justice and vengeance. As we have been saying, vengeance is not justice. Justice is the refusal of vengeance. So we must begin perhaps in closing by asking, somewhat unconventionally, to take up the point with which you began, who is afraid of nonviolence? Why is our exemplary moral courage and our moral political capacity for nonviolent action the first thing that those with the power to wage and seize wars want their citizens to relinquish? Why are constitutional experts now elected to the Congress by the American public silent about rules of war when children are being bombed? Where did the whole American fascination with civil rights go when it comes to the rights of children? But let us invert this today, perhaps, and ask, who will lose from our militant, radical nonviolence? And what does their fear of nonviolence tell us today about both the infrastructure of our rising inequality? worldwide and the vengeance that flows out of it because if we are right vengeance flows out of inequality it is inequality that gives the space for vengeance to take a violent form like we have been saying violence is an effect of something else it is an effect of this vindictive retributive space that our inequality has created worldwide. So how radically must our capacity to reject mass punishment and accept our shared vulnerability change our world? That those afraid of nonviolence now proceed to flatten entire communities of the map of the world. And as we speak, Hamas has now declared twice it wants to annihilate Israel, even as Palestinian lives disappear off the earth under Israeli bombardment. Why do we simply fail to understand that neither act is resistance, that neither will restore our humanity?